This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, as we begin our fifth season, we have a program about endings, the end of Latin America's variety show, Sabado Gigante, and also, is it the end of the Kirchner era in Argentina? That's the question as Argentines gear up for presidential elections later this fall. But first, Natalie Ottinger has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Pope Francis held a series of masses and events in Cuba this week, ahead of his trip to the United States. The Pope is widely credited with negotiating the normalization of relations between Cuba and the U.S., and his trip was partially a reflection of that diplomatic effort. During his homilies, the Pope urged the Cuban government to provide more freedom, and he preached that service to a particular ideology was not genuine service to humanity. Service is never ideological. In other words, we do not serve ideas, but we serve people. Many interpreted that comment as a jab at Cuba's government. But the Pope also criticized the U.S. for maintaining its economic embargo against Cuba. And in his most direct political plea, the Pope called on negotiators working in Cuba to end the long-running civil war in Colombia to find a way to a peaceful solution. The Pope didn't have to wait long to see some of his wish come true. Just a few days after the Pope's plea, negotiators in Havana announced a breakthrough in the Colombian peace talks. Negotiators set a timetable to conclude negotiations toward a peace settlement in six months. Part of the breakthrough was an agreement for Colombia to form a truth commission. The commission would look into the human rights abuse from both sides in the country's civil war, a conflict that has stretched over the past 51 years and claimed about 220,000 lives. A court in Brazil has sentenced one of the leaders of the Workers' Party, the party that rules the country, and that sentencing has renewed calls for the impeachment of President Dilma Rousseff. So far, investigators have not implicated the president in the scandal which revolves around the state oil firm Petrobas. Investigators say construction firms and contractors working for Petrobas were involved in bribes and kickback schemes linked to high-ranking politicians. Wow! Vacari Neto, the former treasurer of the Workers' Party, is one of the highest-ranking politicians implicated in the scandal. Prosecutors say he took at least a million dollars in illegal payments. A judge sentenced him this week to more than 15 years in prison. As the saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. But drug smugglers are proving they too find ingenious ways to move their illegal products. The latest twist comes from Argentina, where authorities uncovered a plot to smuggle a million dollars worth of cocaine to Europe. The smugglers had soaked bags of rice in water that included diluted cocaine. The rice did what it naturally does, soak up the water, and then the rice was dried. The cocaine remained inside the rice. Police say the smugglers intended to grind the rice into powder and sell it as pure cocaine. 
But the police discovered the plane when the rice was moved to a warehouse for shipment, and drug-sniffing dogs detected the odor of cocaine inside the sacks of rice. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Ashburn, Virginia, and the rest of the suburbs for Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia. That area is home to our greatest group of weekly listeners all time. We salute you and thank you for your support, and thanks to all of our listeners elsewhere around the globe. And now we turn to what was a favorite television program for the hemisphere for much of the past 53 years, Sabado Igante. Hosted by the seemingly always exuberant Mario Luis Kreutzberger, affectionately known as Don Francisco. The program began as a variety show in Chile in the 1960s, and during its peak of popularity in that country, 80% of Chileans might watch it each Saturday night, with episodes sometimes lasting as much as eight hours. That was during the 1970s and 80s, and eventually the program was distributed to many countries in the hemisphere from its new production home at Univision in Miami in the U.S., with episodes trimmed a bit to three hours or less. But last week saw the final installment of Sabado Gigante. Univision pulled the plug due to sinking ratings. Despite controversies over racism and sexism in its skits, the program set a record as the longest-running television variety show. We asked Constanza Mujica to reflect with us about the importance of the program. She's a professor who specializes in television at the Universidad Católica in Santiago. She joined us from Chile via Google Hangout. I think it's it's the end of an era, actually. Uh, I, it's not just like the typical thing you say when something that has lasted over 50 years and it, it's actually, I think, it, the end of a mode of representation that uh, was really significant for Chileans in the 60s, 70s and 80s and tremendously significant for uh, uh, Hispanic communities in uh, the United States in the 90s and 2000s. And uh, basically, it's, I, I think, the end, okay, the end of a program of these characteristics has to do with a lowering of the audiences, of course, with uh, lower ratings. And uh, it happened in Chile when uh, Sabados Gigantes moved to, uh, to Miami in the late 80s. Uh, uh, where the the program started to distance it, uh, itself from uh, Chilean audiences, and I think the changes in uh, Hispanic demographics uh, in the last in the late, uh, last few years in the U.S. explains the uh, lowering of interest towards Sabados Gigantes. Uh, I think that it was a great expression of uh, uh, popular culture, first in Chile, then on Miami. It, uh, it was an expression of, uh, of popular culture, but it was, uh, in a way, uh, dignified in the sense that it was uh, expressed on television. It was a place where uh, great stars appeared or uh, were turned into big stars. Uh, but the greatest stars were both Don Francisco, that never had uh, uh, any uh, tremors in laughing about himself, and the audiences in places like uh, 60s and 70s, 80s Chile and uh, 90s and 2000s uh, Hispanic audiences, 
audiences that didn't have such a public space uh, to display their own characteristics. Uh, so I think it, it was very central for those audiences, the uh, possibility to have a, a space, very public space and very common space. Many people have great respect for Don Francisco, otherwise known as Mario Kreutzberger, but many also say that that his time has has passed as far as the ratings reflect that that someone in of a particular age um, doesn't connect as well with younger audiences and with the typical audience for a variety show. I think it's a mixture of uh, Mario Kreutzberger and Don Francisco's age, but, but I don't think it's just that. Uh, the demographics of Hispanic audiences in the U.S. have changed in the last few years. Uh, we have second and third generation uh, uh, people that don't relate to the uh, worries or the um, concerns of uh, the, the first generation uh, immigrants. Uh, for example, uh, the link to the land, this this very like uh, playground humor that, that was displayed very naturally in in uh, Sábados Gigantes, uh, is does not blend well with the concerns of a, of an audience whose first language is English. Uh, many of them do know Spanish, but it's a second language, and many of them just have a very um, a very low knowledge of the language and uh, Saval Gigante still was uh, a link with basically Abuelita's story or but it, with, it it didn't blend well with their personal stories and actually it's it's um it's a question for uh, that that has and must be con and it has been considered by um, uh, in general uh, uh, Spanish uh, spoken programming in the U.S. Well, what? Uh, how do we engage communities that are culturally uh, linked to the uh, with Latin America, but uh, whose uh, domestic and normal uh, personal lives uh, and public uh, lives don't have to do necessarily with the worries or the link with the old land? And I think the. The, that's why I think that the end of Sábado Gigantes is, um, is very interesting in terms of what it means about the changes in Hispanic audiences. I wonder if it also points out a disconnection, because as you mentioned, ratings, and of course it's on Univision in the United States, but it's, it's also uh, transmitted and shared through many other broadcasting operations throughout Latin America, so it is a pan-Latin American program. And so I wonder, if, is it disconnecting with audiences in the United States? Will it be missed in other parts of Latin America? Or has it also seen its time? In, uh, I mean, in Chile, it hasn't been transmitted uh, for the last, I don't know exactly if it's four or five years. Sábados Gigantes as a Chilean program ended a long while ago, and for me what ended yesterday was a, a Hispanic program that was relevant for us Chileans in, in the sense of the recognition of a Chilean figure, someone that had created a program that would last for over 50 years, uh, someone that uh, made uh, Latin American visibility but through Chilean eyes, uh, that was really important for us Chileans, but the program was not a Chilean program from a long, long time ago. I know that it is one of the programs that if I was traveling in Caracas or Mexico City 
or anywhere in Central America, I could see this program a- any Saturday night and and not just in my hotel, but um, in many bars and restaurants and other places. So it's a program that defines a Saturday night in Latin America, or did. It did. But then, then again, remember what uh, the, the different contexts. In, in Chile, when Sábados Gigantes emerged, there was uh, only three channels, and basically one that really had strong ratings. Uh, there was nowhere, uh, there were no many activities uh, for weekends, and there was no cable. So basically, uh, it defined our our not only what we did, but what we were at that time. There was nothing else, and uh, and it was uh, lots of fun. But in a, in a world that is way more connected, in which audiences of air to air. Um, television has decreased in uh, and the audiences of cable has increased internet connections uh, in it's it, it it made less sense to be connected for three four five six hours as we were in the in the 80s some Latina voices here in the United States have said this program needs to be gone it is sexist it is machista um, and so I wonder what you your thoughts are about that, that that may have also been a marker of it had passed its era. It was, it was, it was really sexist. And uh, at times it, it uh, openly uh, laughed about uh, different types of people. Though uh, Don Francisco has said in, in, uh, in interviews that upon entering the American market, he had to tone down many of his uh, of the jokes inside uh, the program because it, they were they wouldn't pass uh, um, standards. For me, any program that has or any uh, cultural manifestation that has these broad kinds of approval uh, means that it resonates at some point with its audiences. And the fact that it ceases to resonate, in my opinion, doesn't have to do with a normative point of view in the sense that uh, it should be out so it is out, but basically, again, a change in the audiences. As you mentioned, that this is a program that starts in Chile in the 1960s and really comes into its prime in, in Chile so that it is noticed in other parts of Latin America during the Pinochet era. And so I'm really wondering... Does it reflect the political cultural aspects of that particularly conservative time in Chile? And did it continue to carry that particular foundation culturally with it? Sábados Gigantes and Don Francisco basically never acknowledge any change in the political systems. Uh, Don Francisco himself declares himself of, uh, as like center leaning towards uh, a little more towards uh, Chilean left, which is not uh, the extreme left by any by any margins, but he never acknowledged the coup. He he says that he received lots of pressure, but he didn't cave into pressure. Uh, but uh, he never acknowledged the Francisco's personal uh, political stance. I think the program. Uh, was uh, functional, or at least it was non-intrusive for uh, local authorities at the time. It was fun, people, uh, funny, people stayed in their homes, it, they, it didn't have any political content, 
And in a way, a country that didn't have uh, many cultural manifestations going on uh, was uh, the alternative of having six hours of programming every Saturday was like very, very welcome. Mm -hmm. But again, if it had been just that, a very uh, like protected environment in a conservative country wouldn't uh, account for the fact that the program actually went outside and was uh, was successful outside. It, it also provided a, a sort of hope in terms of, in a country with, which was basically poor with people with no access to, to buying things, the opportunity of getting a house in this big contest was, uh, was perceived as, as a sort of hope in a, uh, in a less hopeful environment. Thank you so much, Constanza Mujica at the Universidad Católica in Santiago, Chile, joining us today on Latin Pulse via Google Hangout. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for contacting me. Coming up, we'll sort out the political scorecard in Argentina as it heads towards presidential elections. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly 2 million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Argentina heads to the polls next month to elect a new president as current president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner has served two terms and can't run for re-election. But some question if President Fernandez and the Peronist political machine she heads will attempt to keep a hold on power, even as a new president comes into office. Currently, her hand-picked successor, Daniel Scioli, is leading in the polls. The mayor of Buenos Aires, conservative Mauricio Macri of the Republican Proposal Party, is running second. And in a strong third place is Sergio Massa of the leftist United for a New Alternative Alliance. We asked Amy Williams for her analysis of the campaign. She's an editor and researcher for the new website, Latin America Goes Global. She joined us via Skype from New York City. Daniel Scioli is benefiting from the fact that he is her handpicked successor. And despite the fact that she's controversial, she has also built up an incredible political machine of um, a large portion of the population that sees her as the source of their benefits, whether it's uh, welfare beneficiaries or subsidies that she hands out. Um, the Peronist political machine is still a powerful political force. And so while she's polarizing, she does have as many fans as she has critics. So let's deal with the second candidate, Mauricio Macri, who more or less is is from the conservative side in Argentina. What is his appeal to the populace? Well, in many ways, this, this uh, election is turning into an election on being pro-Cristina or being anti-Cristina. Um, and Mauricio Macri is very much representing, representing the Alliance for Change. Um, I mean, the title of his uh, alliance is actually called We Can Change, and he is promising um, a return to sound economic policies and undoing a lot of the uh, economic 
tangles that Christina's created that he faults for causing a lot of the problems in the Argentine economy today. So when we talk about those tangles, would that include the defaults? <laughs> yes, the default, the dispute with the hedge funds, um, the subsidies and the price controls that are helping to fuel inflation that by some independent analysts is running at 30%. However, we don't actually know what the current, the actual inflation rate is because um, after it started increasing beyond what was politically comfortable, um, it's being it's been manipulated by the government to show a lower level and is so is not being used by most international agencies that track inflation around the world. So is the government just not releasing figures or just partial figures? They are releasing figures, but they're releasing figures based on a different formula than is used by most other countries. So how would you characterize the the Argentine economy? Uh, there is, they're, they're still dealing actually with, with the first default, which is uh, more than a decade old. And, and, and now there's been this the second um, default. Are, are they able to do any business uh, in, on, in the world? I'm, I see them cutting deals with Russia. So obviously there are some folks who are willing to do business with them. Um, well, being in default, they don't typically have, have access to many of the international markets. However, countries are always free to do deals with whoever they choose. Um, and they have received uh, loans from China. They, in the past, received loans from Venezuela. Um, because of this current dispute with the hedge funds, though, they are not able to raise money on the traditional international markets the way other countries do. So is Mockery using this as, as a platform? Uh, do people understand what he's trying to get across when, when he talks economics? Or is it merely, really, um, this election, a referendum on the Fernandez de Kirchner administration? Um, well, in the name of it being politicking, and he is basically running on a platform of being anti-Christina. He talks about undoing economic tangles. However, many of her economic policies are politically popular with various parts of the population. How, how is he selling this idea to the populace uh, that is very tuned into the welfare programs that, that the current government has? Um, is he able to, is, is he going to be able to make this sale between now and November? That's the question is whether or not there's so many, the, there's a sufficient portion of the population that sees Christina as flag bearer for Argentine independence in the face of, you know, Western financial uh, vulture funds and that she is doing for Argentina what needs to be done. And this election is very much a referendum on her. So in some ways, that brings in Sergio Massa. His platform obviously is also a reflection of dealing with the current president. And so I'm, I'm wondering what you see about his platform. What makes him of the left, but independent of the Peronistas? Well, the main thing is that he does not have the endorsement of the current Peronist president, uh, Christina Fernandez de Kirchner, but he does identify as a, a, Peron, a Peronist. Um, and the, the main thing to be seen will be whether or not the Peronists unite behind a single candidate, because if they do, they have a clear majority in the upcoming election. Um, if you combine the two vote totals, they will be well over 50%. But it remains to be seen whether Massa is willing to give up his um, his platform as being Peronist, but not being of the Kirchner alliance. So clearly what we're seeing here is Massa has the 
uh, ability maybe not to win, but to be the spoiler. Yeah, he has the ability to be the kingmaker. If he were to throw his support behind either one of the other two, it would avoid the need to go to a runoff. But but he's not polling high enough, do you think, to, to make it past the runoff stage? Well, currently he's polling in third place. Um, Scioli's in first place with 38.4%, or this were as of the primaries. Um, actual polling in Argentina is notoriously unreliable um, for getting firm numbers which is part of the reason that the uh, primary system was actually instituted. Um, and then Macri is, Macri's alliance is, was polled at 30.1%, although Macri did not receive um, all of that vote himself, as he had other candidates he was competing against in the primary. We've, we've been talking quite a bit about the horse race here. Uh, besides the, the personality politics in Argentina, um, is there anything driving this election? Um, besides maybe personality and economics? Is it all pocketbook issues when when we're talking about Argentine politics? <laughs> um, I, that's what seems to be the primary issue, is that the Argentine economy is just not doing well, and these the three candidates are um, taking varying positions along the spectrum as to whether or not they continue the current uh, Kirchner policies or they uh, endorse changes. Um but in many ways, the current policies may not be able to be continued, whether or not somebody, the whoever wins, chooses to, because there's just not the funding to continue spending at the rate Christina was able to spend without new sources of funds. You have various contacts in Buenos Aires. What are they telling you about the word on the street about this particular election? Um, it's a very polarized election. There's... Um, Everyone I've spoken to seems to have very firm opinions one way or another, but that's purely anecdotal. That's not by any means um, representative of the entire population or even of a significant sample of Buenos Aires. Well, we, we certainly have um, the polling through the primaries and we have your anecdotes and, and analysis. What haven't we talked about about these elections that you think is important for people to consider? What's also important to consider is that whoever has whoever wins this presidency election um, is going to have a mess of an economy to un, to take on, um, and they may have their hands tied in much the same way that Rousseff in Brazil is having her hands tied by not being able to necessarily um, take on the various policy promises she made during the campaign due to economic and fiscal situation in the country. President Rousseff in Brazil certainly has problems based on, on a number of different corruption scandals. Oh, yes. yes, corruption as well. I, I, I'm just wondering, uh, is that also the case in Argentina? Or is, does corruption play a play a role here, or, or is it merely the issue of the, the problems of defaulting on loans and the, the continued court fights with, with hedge funds? There's a fair amount of corruption scandals that are kind of percolating around um, I wouldn't say that any of them seem to be um, a decisive issue for the current election, but they may be very decisive for Christina when she leaves the presidency and loses her immunity. Um, there's a number of cases in which she might be implicated after leaving office. Let me ask this. What, what is the future for President Fernandez de Kirchner? What, there are some people who have conjectured that, that she was trying to pick a candidate that would let her pull some strings from behind the scenes. Is, is, is this the end of the Kirchner era? 
Well, I've also seen, too, that um, she very much wanted the way she is structuring the election and attempting to handpick her successor is that she would like to stay involved in politics after uh, her term ends. However, the way the political um, presidency is set up, the person who actually is the incumbent um, has at their fingertips a vast political machine and they it will be entirely up to them whether or not to use Christina's uh, skills or connections in any way or to completely cast her aside. Thanks so much. Amy Williams, one of the editors of the new website, Latin America Goes Global, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And now a special message to our technical director, Jim Singer, who's not with us this week. We hope to see you back in the studio soon, so the microphones and soundboard will have that special glow only you can give them. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Natalie Oninger, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs> <laughs>